I think the theme of our service this evening has become evident through the worship that it is very much about God's place in our lives. I was going to do something a bit different this evening, which involved ping-pong balls and prunes, but um, I then spoke to Keith and I said, yeah, calm down, it's okay. I, I spoke to Keith and I said, well, what, what's, the, what's the passage you'd like us to look at this evening? And he said, well, we've been looking at the minor prophets, and he suggested we look this evening at Obadiah. Uh, if you're looking for a minor prophet, you can't get much more minor than Obadiah. He's... Um, got a, a very specific message to give to a very specific group of people in a particular place at a particular time. The book of Obadiah is the shortest in the Old Testament. Um, a couple of the epistles top that in the New Testament, but Obadiah, um, his, his words amount to about 450 words in total, so there's not a huge amount there. The other thing is, we might question, who is he? And the fact is nobody knows that either. There are several Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Um, one of whom, very famously, was Ahab's palace administrator, and that was in the time of Elijah. And Elijah, of course, was one of the greatest of all the prophets. And Ahab served him and sought to see his words, the words of God, brought into, into action. But it wasn't him. There was another um, Obadiah who was the gatekeeper in the time of Nehemiah. But it wasn't him either. We don't actually know who it was. It was quite a common name. But none of those mentioned elsewhere. It's most likely that this book was produced, this, this text, this message was given um, between, it, well it says anywhere between 840 and 350 BC, so that narrows it down a little, doesn't it? It's talking about, it's somewhat vague, isn't it? But it's not vague in its message. But one thing we do know about Obadiah is his name means this. He is a worshipper of Yahweh, that Yah bit at the end of his name, a worshipper of God. And that's very important because taking this message, if you weren't a worshipper of God, would be a real challenge indeed. Let's read the book of Obadiah. There's only 21 verses. Ah, that's a, a, quite a, a specific passage, isn't it? And it's got quite a strong message. And the message is one of not putting yourself above where you should be. I don't know if you have a brother or a sister. Quick show of hands. Anybody here got a brother and or a sister? You can tell from the look on your faces the years of torment. If you've got an older brother or sister, you might know this even more, but um, you all know about sibling rivalry, don't you? Yeah? I know all about sibling rivalry because I've got a sister. She's older than me. Uh, I do like to point that out to her from time to time. She's going to hit 50 before me. But um, her name's Helen, which means the ray of the sun. That wasn't my experience as a child. Um, she has prepared me, I suppose, for the challenges of life by making sure that I really learned how to deal with a challenge when she was young and I was young. And she would, you know, treat me perhaps not in the way that might be the best for a sister for her younger brother, but that's pretty much true of all of us, isn't it? We all compete with our brothers and sisters for attention. Uh, when she was given sweets, and I was given sweets, as was often the case when my grandfather came to visit, 
she would eat all of hers really quickly, and I didn't eat mine very quickly. That's, that's changed, obviously, since. But um, she would then start on mine, which is probably the reason why I now eat them as quickly as possible in case somebody else tries to get hold of them. But um, she would also spend her money and then work on spending mine. It's very different now, though. Now that we're older, now that we've come to understand each other a bit better. It's the same with my own children. I've got two children. They're both adults now. My son passed his driving test this week, so I'm feeling rather old. Especially when he drove me home. I got, I, I got older in the last few minutes, I have to say. It was quite hair-raising. But he, he hadn't driven my car for a long time, so he wasn't used to it. But when they were little, they used to get up quite early. And Gillian and I would be asleep in inverted commas, in our bed, and they would rattle around upstairs, they'd go into each other's rooms, they'd play, and they would play perfectly happily for hours until they realised that we were awake. And within seconds of them realising that we were awake, they'd start arguing and fighting with each other, and then they would have this competition as who could get the best attention first. So sibling rivalry is nothing new. I mean, right from the beginning of the Bible, we've got Cain and Abel, haven't we? That's the ultimate case of sibling rivalry to the extent that one killed the other. We hope that ours doesn't extend to that. Obadiah's message speaks directly into a situation that's been caused by sibling rivalry. That rivalry between Jacob and Esau, the people of Jacob and the people of Esau. They were twins. It hadn't really occurred to me until I read this again the other day that that Jacob and Esau were actually twins. They shared the same space within their mother. And the Bible reminds us that uh, they started fighting even before they were born. In Genesis 25, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? Twins fighting before they're even born. Some sort of power struggle. They fought in the womb, Jacob and Esau. And the Lord indicated from the very outset that Jacob would be the greater of the two brothers. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. I think that's a wonderful image, isn't it? He's got hold of his... It's almost like, you come back out the way, I'm on my way out. And that's why they got their names. Esau means red. He came out and mum looked at him and went, goodness me, isn't he red? Jacob means supplanter, one who takes the place of another. That's what his name means. And he was trying even then to do just that. 
Of course, his parents didn't help much. Their parents didn't help much. Isaac clearly favoured Esau because he was the going-out hunting-y type. And Rebekah clearly favoured Jacob. And it was her plan that was to secure the blessing that God had already indicated would be Jacob's. When they did that trick thing, you know where Jacob put on the hairy suit? And he went in to his dad and his dad thought it was Esau and gave him the blessing. She was actually, Rebecca was actually seeing that God's plan came about the way that God intended. Because Isaac had set his mind on blessing Esau. But God said, we'll put Jacob first. And that same rivalry that started then ploughed on all through history. And Obadiah now speaks to the two lands of Jacob and of Esau. Edom, the name also means red, is named after Esau. And this is a prophecy against that people. And it's not looking good for them, is it? It's quite, a, quite a, a fearsome time. You know, they're not going to exist because of the way they've behaved. Sometimes it's disturbing, isn't it, the way that God speaks about situations in, in the Old Testament, the way that God seems to condone things that we would not condone today. But we need to understand that God will see right and good prevail. And God will not be ridiculed. Obadiah says, See, I'll make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. In fact, they'd moved into a land. The Edomites had moved into a land where the previous occupants had lived in caves, so they'd basically moved into the same homes, you know, um, cut into the, the rock faces. They had occupied the mountains, and they probably felt pretty safe as a result of that. It's this sort of fortress feeling, isn't it? Do you remember on the beach when you were a kid, I'm the king of the castle, and you're standing on top of it, and you feel like the world is yours and everyone else? That's what Eden was doing. There they were at the heights, and they said to themselves... Who can bring me down to the ground? Well, God's got an answer for that. God says, I can. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And of course, we've got the second land, the land of Judah, Jacob's people, who had not long before this suffered the indignity of invasion and exile. Jerusalem had been sacked. The temple was no longer available for worship because of the way it had been desecrated and God's people had been taken away into exile. And Edom stood and looked on. They looked on at what was going and they delighted in it. They rejoiced in the suffering of their brother, you know, brother Jacob's uh, misfortune. Have you ever heard the word schadenfreude? It's a good word, isn't it? It means delighting in the misfortune of others. That strangely satisfying sense that we get when something goes slightly wrong for somebody else and we've got that sort of I told you so feeling. That happens quite a lot in school classrooms. 
If you are in a classroom ever and you want to get the attention of the class, what you do is you pick the most well-behaved child in the whole room and shout their name. Everyone will stop to find out what terrible ordeal awaits them. You know, you're all sitting there chatting away and you go, Alice! And the silence. Because everyone wants to stop and watch. When I was at secondary school, there was a teacher called Mr Horncastle. He used to teach English and we would all be in the classrooms in the corridor and if Mr Horncastle went off on one, and he often did, my teacher would simply stop teaching and open the classroom door so we could all listen in. And you could listen in, even though there were several classrooms and doors between you and him, because he really went for it. And we were all pretty glad that it wasn't us that was at the receiving end. I remember once being on the receiving end of Mr Horncastle, and he so terrified me by barraging me with questions. Do you always do this? Do you always do that? And the last question he asked was, do you always deliberately disobey teachers? And I said, yes, sir, because that was the standard answer that I'd given to all the other questions. Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. I didn't actually listen to what he said. But sometimes there is a sense of delight. Do you know when someone overtakes you on a difficult corner and you think, what do you do that for? And then when you get to the next set of traffic lights, they're still there right in front of you. And you think, ah, didn't help at all, did it? But we all do it. We all feel like that. Edom took this to its extreme. They were a proud bystander. They watched with great delight as Judah suffered, as the land of the brother was taken apart. And they were so full of themselves that they considered themselves above the people of God and above the authority of God. Abadiah said, you should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Sometimes you have to deal with bullying situations at school. I've had to deal with a few over the years. And you might want to deal with the one child that was the one that went and punched or hit or said or did the thing that's wrong. But there's also another worrying factor you have to take into account, and that's the ones that stood and watched it happen and didn't say anything or do anything to stop it. The bystanders. The people that condone it by their inaction. And that's what Edom's done. It hasn't actually attacked Jacob's people, but it stood there and gone, ah, look at what's happening to them. God obviously doesn't favour them anymore. And we say to the children, actually, it's just as wrong to stand and watch and do nothing, say nothing to anybody, as it is to actually do the thing in the first place. There are all sorts of reasons why people might not stand up in those situations. They might fear for themselves, and maybe Edom did fear for themselves. So they thought, right, well, cheer along the others in case they turn on us. And now Obadiah's telling them that's exactly what's going to happen. They cheered on the invaders. They thought of them as being on their side. They thought of them as the allies. And now these same things were turned against them. They weren't really their friends after all, and they're going to get a taste of their own medicine. I suppose the question then is, how does this relate to us? What's the message? Well, Edom was guilty of pride 
before the Lord. They considered themselves greater than they actually were. They thought themselves more loved, more important than they actually were. They delighted in the suffering of God's people and they ridiculed God as a result. They thought that they were above God's justice. This week uh, we had Ash Wednesday, didn't we? Now, it's not something we do much about in the United Reformed Church. I'm not sure there were many Ash Wednesday services going on. But in certain parts of the church, Ash Wednesday is a big moment. Last Sunday morning I was playing the organ at St Augustine's Church in Belvedere, one of those of our brothers and sisters uh, who, who make the Pope look quite informal. Um, you can still get the ringing in your ears and the sense of, of, of the, you know, the incense and everything. But on Wednesday they had ashing. People came to celebrate communion and as part of that service they kneel and the priest takes ash made from last year's palm crosses. Uh, in fact the priest last Sunday said if you've still got them and you haven't bought them this morning could you post them through my door I love the idea of him finding a little pile of crosses by his front door but they burn them and they make ash and then they kneel before the priest and the priest makes the sign of the cross in ash on their forehead I I said to Gillian once uh, she wasn't completely convinced but I said the darker and more obvious the cross the greater the sin that's being forgiven so I obviously came out with a massive cross But it's the words that the priest says when they place the ashes on the forehead that are the most telling. And it's an an important reminder of how we should be. The priest says simply this. Remember you are dust and unto dust you shall return. In other words, don't think yourself more important than you are. Don't think just because things are going well for you and you're being blessed that you are somehow special in the sight of God. We're all special in the sight of God because he loves us all. But sometimes it's tempting, isn't it, to look across at others and think, well, we're doing all right. But they're not because they're not doing it right. Earlier this week, I had the feedback. I had to do some of those psychometric tests. Would you believe the United Reformed Church, if you're applying for ministry, asks you to undertake psychometric testing online? I had to do three sets of tests, and they were all quite varied. And then the lady phoned me up to give me feedback on them. And she proceeded to describe this person who I'm yet to meet. Or at least Gillian's yet to meet. Some of you may have met him, but um, we vary. We're obviously different in different situations. But actually, one of the things that I came away from that call was thinking, oh, you know, <laughs> perhaps it's not that bad after all. Perhaps I'm okay. Perhaps I am going to be all right. And then I thought very strongly and suddenly, thank the Lord that he takes us and makes us what he wants us to be. Because if I was what I was just naturally we wouldn't be going anywhere. He brings us back down to earth and reminds us who is in charge, who is the one that we should give honour and we should give glory to. It's a sobering reminder, this reader, reading rather. Pride is destructive and divisive. We should not live 
in a self-serving manner. We should always seek to set aside our wants in order to put God and his purposes first. And we shouldn't be bystanders in this world, guilty of, they call them, sins of omission, don't they? Not the things we do wrong, but the good things we don't do, especially in the face of things such as injustice, poverty, even how much plastic is in the supermarket, things like that that we turn a blind eye to because it's convenient but it's damaging the lives of others. So let's not be anything but servants and people of God, submitting to him, not allowing pride or anything else to get in the way. That, I think, is what Obadiah is warning us about and something for which we need to seek God that he can show us the way to live for him. Amen.